Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. That moment is best described by the film The Matrix, that moment where he leans back and you see the bullet in slow mo. <laughs> I felt, I saw the words coming out of me. And the way that I related to it at the time, and I think it's the same way I relate to it now, has a lot to do with the fact that my dad was a pastor and that he had always referred to his profession as a calling. Mm. And I'd always had to defend myself from old ladies at church who would be like, are you going to follow in your father's footsteps? Which I always thought was crazy anyway, because I was like, isn't it supposed to be a calling? You can't make that decision. Not for the ministry. That's supposed to be a calling. What are you talking right. about? Were you paying attention in church? You know, I had that in my head, but I would always defend myself by saying, well, no, uh, the stage, not the pulpit is my calling. Hey there, it's Light, and we are back with another episode of At the End of the Tunnel, which is a podcast that shines a light on backstories, and particularly on the backstories of people who've taken a leap of faith away from convention and in the direction of helping or inspiring people through their work or through their nonprofit, or in the case of my guest this week, through their art. Back when I was only dreaming about starting a podcast. I had this short list in my mind of the dozen or so guests that I really wanted to interview. And my guest this week was near the top of that list. His name is Saul Williams. So I first discovered Saul's work in 1998 after going by myself to see an independent film called Slam, which starred this actor and poet named Saul Williams. And his performance and the subject matter, which was about how easy it is for black men to get caught up in the American prison industrial complex, it not only blew me away, but Slam went on to win Sundance and Khan that year. And then I started spotting Saul around New York City, where I was living at the time. I'd see him on the subway. I ran into him at a couple of restaurants. And anyway, I got to enjoy a lot of his live spoken word performances that he was doing around town. And his star was rising. And I was just so inspired because he's one of those people that every time you see him, you learn something new and it just leaves you feeling more and more inspired. And then later, Saul got into doing more films and then he was on Broadway. And then he started writing and producing music. And he's released about a half a dozen studio albums at this point. And his production quality reminds me a lot of Kanye West's work, his best work, and that you can listen to the albums from beginning to end. And they each tell a story that just gets you to think about it, gets you to think about society in a different way. 
and Saul's body of work as a spoken word artist and a musician and an actor, I think about him as our generation's Harry Belafonte. Belafonte always said, look, I am not a singer who gets involved in activism from time to time. He said, I am an activist who sings from time to time. And that's what I've always felt about Saul's incredible artistic contributions to the world. Ever since I saw the movie Slam, he is first and foremost an activist and his medium happens to be spoken word and music and writing and acting and so on. And the themes that show up in his work are often about social justice and race and gender, capitalism. And he's collaborated with some amazing people over the years as well. Everyone from Nine Inch Nails to Nas to Allen Ginsberg to Rick Rubin. And even though he's been interviewed and profiled countless times, what we focus on in our interview was his backstory. We went really deep into his upbringing as the son of a minister and an educator, both of whom were activists as well. And we talked about the moment when he discovered his passion for spoken word, which happened almost by accident, and how he had been preparing for that moment without even realizing it, which I find to be the case with all of my guests about 99.9% of the time. And we touched on his unlikely path to starring in that film that I loved, Slam, because he wasn't the director's first choice, but he somehow made it happen. And we talked about that, and we talked about why he decided to get into music later, which was a leap of faith that surprised even him. And as with all origin stories, Saul's was indeed fascinating. As you know, I like to do extensive research, but there were some aspects of his story that surprised me, and I was even more impressed with him and what he's done in the world. And I think you're going to find this conversation incredibly thought-provoking and inspiring as well. I'm blessed to be able to have these conversations and to be able to share them with you. And I want to thank those of you who've already left your five-star rating or review because that's how we can spread these stories even further and wider. And you can do your part right now from your phone. It only takes 10 seconds. Just look at the title of the podcast in purple, which is if you're looking at it on the Apple Podcast app. Click that. Scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five stars. Just tap the fifth star. And that's it. That's all you have to do. You've done your part to help expose other people to these stories that could inspire them to take their own leap of faith. And it only takes you 10 seconds to make the world a better place. So thank you for that. And without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Mr. Saul Williams. Mr. Saul Williams, it is my pleasure. It is my honor to sit down with you and talk a little bit about your life. I have known of you and crossed paths with you for several years now. Most recently in Los Angeles, probably, I don't know, seven years ago or six years ago or something like that. I think we saw each other on Laurel Canyon or we saw each other in, in uh, one of those canyons. And so now we get a chance to go a little deeper into, into our relationship, but also just into telling your story. And you've told your story so many times. I mean, I've seen a lot of your interviews in preparing for this conversation but I'm hoping to kind of go into some stuff that maybe you haven't talked about as much in those interviews. So thank you very much for being here and being open to all of that. My first question 
that I like to ask my guests is thinking back to childhood. I know you grew up in Newburgh, New York, about an hour outside of Manhattan. And when you think back to young Saul, the youngest of three, right? And your favorite toy or activity as a child, what would you say that was and why? So there was this Tonka truck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you have to, like, you remember Tonka truck. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I had this, uh, this yellow Tonka truck with a tractor that my grandmother gave me. And I didn't have a lot of toys like that. So I had a lot of fun playing with that. I played with train tracks and a racetrack. I never could say that I had a favorite toy because I was more of an adventurer and I was sometimes making toys and games in my head. And that was my favorite thing to do. I grew up in a house that had 28 rooms, nine fireplaces. <laughs> yeah, it was a, a crazy house that was built by the same guy who built Madison Square Garden in 1906 in Newburgh. And my parents purchased it for like $20,000 or something. And it was always freezing cold in the winter. <laughs> but there were lots of places to hide all these crazy things under the stairs and crazy rooms in the basement. And, and then outside, you know, there were pine trees. So I would collect pine cones and I would use my, I don't know if you remember the round sleds that you would sometimes use to slay down the hill. I would paint those and, and make a, a shield out of those. Imagine the pine cones as grenades. I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to make a bow and arrow. I spent more time trying to figure out how to make slingshots. I would order Chinese stars from the back of like Mad Magazine and destroy my walls. I would constantly use coat hangers and hang them with bald socks to play basketball in my bedroom. But my favorite thing to do, I think, was after hours, I had um, always made sure I had a radio and I was always a procurer of headphones. And I loved late at night, I had insomnia as a kid, two things. One, going through the radio stations and seeing if I could find any like old radio plays from the 40s or something, listening to those. And simultaneously, there were these watermarks on the ceiling. And I would stare at these watermarks for hours, deciphering shapes mm. and whole sort of like stories surrounding the shapes that were coming through the watermarks while simultaneously there were squirrels in the wall. And so I'm mm. <laughs> listening to the squirrels and stuff like that. But yeah, there's, there was never one toy. There was lots of games. It was, I mean, I was always busy. I will say this, which is that for whatever reason, my father made it we were not allowed to use the word board. Mm. We were literally were not allowed to use the word board. There was two words I was not allowed to use as a kid, nigger, board. Oh yeah, there was also one else, liar, three words. And so I always feel like maybe, you know, in my recounting of things, I'm like, well, maybe I was never bored because I wasn't allowed to use the word. I'm not sure. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> but I was changing toys constantly. and. The biggest 
toy I was playing with was my imagination. So mm. a sheet instantly became a cape, a stick instantly became a spear. Were you into Star Wars and all those things like we all were? Because we're all the same age. So were you yeah, were you watching yeah. watching movies and stuff at that time? Definitely, but peripherally. Like, I mean, I was into Star Wars enough to have like Return of the Jedi curtains and to bake for those and to have Empire Strikes Back sheets. I was also very much into Shazam. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was like eight, I was really into Spider-Man. I had a Spider-Man birthday party. I had an RTD themed birthday party. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like when they used to sell that spray that you could like attach to your wrist and shh as Spider-Man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like collecting quarters from like the couch crevices and buying little toys from those things in the supermarket from those machines like a little rubber mm. ball or something um mm. jacks <laughs> we could do a whole podcast just on the toy collection right <laughs> all the different interests you but know, that's interesting I, yeah oh, go ahead erector set though erector set was probably the thing <laughs> i did i did like my lincoln logs and my erector set i loved constructing okay you have two sisters, right? Yeah, I have two older sisters. So were you playing by yourself or were you guys all playing together for the most part? I was playing by myself. My oldest sister is seven years older than me and my the next one is four years older than me. And okay. so they were always into their own thing. And I was playing by myself up until a certain point when my cousin, who's the same exact age as me, moved in with us. My mm. cousin dudes. And so then, and that was after begging my parents, I can't he come stay with us. And um, and so he moved from Haiti, where he was living with my grandfather before he passed, to live with us. So he lived with us when I was in third grade. Then he went back to live with my grandmother and then back in sixth grade. And he stayed with us from sixth grade on to the end of high school. So then I had someone to play with. Interesting. Talk a little bit about your family heritage, because like for my family, I don't really know what happens beyond two or three generations before me, right? Because you have the whole slavery thing in there. Yeah. And But so-and-so was a doctor. So-and-so was the first this and the first that. What was that conversation like in the Williams household to make you proud to be a, a Williams? Well, first, a bit of background. So my mother's side of the family is Haitian. Mm-hmm. And they arrived at Ellis Island from Haiti, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather arrived in 1917 in Ellis Island, at Ellis Island, and moved from there, moved to Brooklyn. And so both of my parents are born and raised in Brooklyn. Now, my great-grandmother, Amelie Charlemagne, who was on that boat, I remember her Mm. as a kid. She was a 80-year-old woman taking ballet classes in Brooklyn. And, and I was, uh, I was enchanted by first how old she was, <laughs> you know? She, so there's that side, there's the Haitian side. And my mother has had nine brothers and sisters, all born and raised in New York. Most of them served time in, in the armed services or the air force. And my mom was the first of her family to go to college. Okay. She met my dad while she was in college. And my dad born and raised in Brownsville, Brooklyn. His mother, my grandma Mabel, had uh, basically run to Brooklyn. And this is kind of interesting. I've been thinking about this a bit 
because of the pandemic. But during the first influenza, the 1918 pandemic, pandemic, 1918 pandemic, my grandmother lost her mom, two sisters and father and became the only survivor of her family in Smokes, South Carolina. And so decided to save money and catch a bus to Brooklyn. And so I grew up knowing that grandmother as well. And so she raised my dad alone. His father, who I also knew, was an alcoholic and they had separated by the time she was, my dad was like five or six. And so here comes the, the pride parts, right? So my dad sang. And when he was nine years old, he was cast on NBC show called Star Time Kids and where he would sing opera and he was paid $36 a minute and would tell us stories about how he would try to stretch the notes (laughs) so he might be paid a little more. And so he uh, did that show and then ended up in the School of Music and Art, which became LaGuardia High, which is the famed school of fame, Mm -hmm. the film and TV show. My dad went to that school one of his classmates was a painter by the name of Billy D. Williams um, <laughs> <laughs> and tons of other people, you know. However, when my dad was 19, he was called into the ministry. Mm. And from that point forward, he went to seminary and then became a pastor. And so I grew up in the church. And so there was a great deal of pride and lineage that didn't necessarily connect to the Williams or Charlemagne Skeet clan, but that connected more so to Black American culture and its relationship to the church and what it represented, particularly in relationship to our struggle in connection to spirituality, but very much connected to the civil rights movement. Both my parents were activists and involved in that movement. That's how I was introduced to so many ways of looking at the world in relationship to our progress as a people, as a community. I watched my parents do the work and grew up in a church community where I could guarantee on any given day, there were about 90 old people that were praying for me specifically, Mm -hmm. who would tell me on Sunday, like, I'm going to be praying for you this week. I heard you have an audition. I'm going to be praying for you. Was that photo of your mom at the being arrested at the protest, was that up in your house somewhere or was that stowed away in some scrapbook? Did you guys talk so, about that? Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass 
if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. So the thing is, with that now famous photo of my mom, we grew up hearing about this photo. We grew Mm. up hearing that my mom was arrested at this protest. And the protest was about, at the time, New York City had not integrated any of the construction jobs, none of the bus drivers, none of that stuff. And so there was a movement to integrate in New York City, in the North, Like, you should be hiring Black construction workers. You should be hiring Black bus drivers and allowing Black people to work on the subway and and all this stuff. And so she was protesting that. And so we grew up hearing that my mom had been arrested and that it was a front page of the New York Times or whatever, but uh, or the New York Times Herald. But we had never seen it until about five or six years ago. Mm. Someone, the photographer was selling the photo on eBay. Mm. And my cousin found the photo and was like, isn't this Aunt Juanita? But it hit us all so hard because my sisters and I had grown up hearing about this happening, but my parents had not kept a scrapbook. Mm. So it was just a story we were told. Mm. And so seeing that photo was crazy. Mm. So you, you had decided that you wanted to be an actor at a fairly young age. I think you were eight years old. What did you experience that? planted that thought in your head? Well, I guess it's this. So one, I told you my father had a background in opera and my mom was a school teacher, but both of them growing up in New York had a huge, huge love of theater. I mean, like as time passes, I realized how blessed I was in the sense that my parents were always like at least once a month, sometimes more, we're going to go see this play. Hmm. In the city? In the city, on Broadway, off Broadway, always. Also because my dad pastored a fairly large church, the producers of plays would often send free tickets to the pastor's family because they knew that if they got the pastor into the play, that they might arrange a bus trip. (laughs) (laughs) Very clever. (laughs) Very clever. So as a result, there were always these tickets. Like we got invited to go see this, that, whatever. Your arms too short to box with God, Serafina, Tap, all these things. Anything, especially anything Black that hit off-Broadway or Broadway, we had tickets. Mm. And so before I even made that decision, I was going to plays regularly on the edge of my seat. Mm. Secondly, my mom and her relationship to music was another thing in terms of like, she was a concert goer and she would bring us to concerts. In fact, you may have read this, but my mother was rushed from a James Brown concert to give birth to me. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) She went there at 38, 39 weeks pregnant. (laughs) Exactly. And so she was there with my two sisters and I started kicking 
one of the security guards at the concert happened to be a member of my dad's church. And she mm. left my sisters with them. And the mm. ambulance came to the venue wow. and brought her to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. So I had this relationship to seeing performance. I saw The Wiz when it was on Broadway with Stephanie Mills. I mean, like, I saw the Jacksons as a kid. Like, we went to shows, not to mention the gospel concerts as well. Mm -hmm. My dad's church always had, like, one of those choirs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Was it a there black was church? Yeah. Was it a full, yeah, it fully a black church? Fully black Baptist church that was okay. between a crack house and a brothel. So people were catching the Holy Ghost and the whole nine. <laughs> the whole nine. Okay. The whole nine. Yeah. And so, yeah, in fact, a short story is that my father had been, so I grew up in Newburgh. My father had actually been called to pastor one of the oldest Black churches in Newburgh called Ebenezer Baptist Church. And they were really run by old people. And one of the first things my dad did was he started a gospel choir in the church. And the old people got so mad at the fact that the young people were singing gospel, which is something that people like don't even remember in like church history. But the old folks were like, the gospel is devil music. We're supposed to be singing spirituals. Y'all are getting too into this gospel stuff. And the church split in two. And my dad ended up founding a different church with all the young people. Oh, wow. Yeah, because of gospel music. Wow. Yeah. And, and that's and, when I was like six, seven. So was Pete Seeger coming to sing at that time at the new church or was he coming to the old church? Both. Okay. Both. So I grew up with Pete Seeger as a regular fixture in my life mm -hmm. um, just because he was a neighbor. And okay. so the first time I remember meeting Pete Seeger, once again, I'm probably five or six now. Another thing that you remember, but I'm sure a lot of people don't, is that before Black History Month was celebrated as a nationally and before Martin Luther King Day was a national holiday, we used to skip school right. on Martin Luther King Day. And so I remember skipping school and going to a community church event on Martin Luther King Day and Pete Seeger would show up. He would always be there and talking about his relationship to the movement and singing. And so, yeah, him and my father were close. And so then he would come to my father's church regularly. And I was always, as a kid, because we sang some of these songs in school, I was always like, we have this great choir. Why are you asking this white dude to sing these school songs? <laughs> we shall <laughs> overcome. <laughs> you know, and he'd be like, if I had a hammer and all this type yeah. of shit. And, uh, but half of those school songs, I didn't realize he had written, right. you know, or inherited through the folk tradition, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, that was just a, a beautiful thing. But anyway, in answer to your question, so I was ex highly exposed to the performing arts as a kid. And also one more thing, because I was bored in church half the time, like I could enjoy a good choir or a good sermon, but the long prayers, I would be like, strumming through the Bible and looking at the maps in the front of the end of the Bible and like all this stuff. But I had an affinity for the language in the Bible. Mm -hmm. Like this is hilarious how this is written, the old English King James version of the Bible that we were using. And so then at eight years old, I discovered Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I went to a magnet school and they had a class called Shake Hands with Shakespeare that I took. 
in the afternoon. And we were responsible for the school plays. And I got cast in Julius Caesar. And so that is the first Shakespearean play that I read. And that year, I read everything Shakespeare because, partially because of the similarities in language between what was in the Shakespeare books and what was in the Bible, mm -hmm. what Shakespeare would talk about and the jokes he would make versus the jokes that were not in the Bible. <laughs> you know, I found it interesting. So it's anyway, it's during that first rehearsal of Julius Caesar that I come home, I'm eight years old, and I say, I want to be an actor when I grow up. You know, and, and what did what did your sure. dad say to you when you told him that? My dad verbatim directly dinner table was I'll support you as an actor if you get a law degree. And my mom said the craziest shit immediately, which is like, oh, then you should do your next school report on Paul Robeson. He was an actor and a lawyer. Hmm. And that was the beginning of me learning about Paul Robeson. Literally every time I was given a biographical school report to do from third grade on, I always chose Paul Robeson and I'd study another aspect of his career. Like mm. it wasn't about cheating or like having a report that I already did. It was sincere interest in going deeper. Yeah. Going deeper. Your dad also encouraged you to take tap classes. Yep. Yep. And that was a beautiful sort of weird thing. So yeah, my dad came from that old school singing opera in the late 40s and early 50s in New York. It was like, if you want to be an actor, you have to know how to tap. Yeah. But <laughs> you, you felt some kind of way about that first tap class. Yeah. And I convinced him to not go back as I came back. And forgive me, I'm going to say what I said. So, you know, mm -hmm. like, yes. you know, I was, I was trying stuff out. I'm, I'm nine years <laughs> eight old. years old. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Eight or nine, you know, and I'm come back and I'm like, I'm the only guy in that class that making us wear a leotard. I feel like a faggot. Mm -hmm. And my father said, hey, wait, 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 wait. What did you say? I don't want to ever hear that word come out of your mouth again. He was like, look. You told me you want to be an actor, an artist. So listen, you need to start now and understand that not everybody is attracted to the same type of person. And you will be surrounded as you already are, as a matter of fact, because let me tell you a little something about your godfather. Maybe you haven't picked up on it. Let me tell you something about your sister's godfather. Let me tell you something about da 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 da. The only thing he didn't say is, let me tell you a little something about me, which he found out years later. But <laughs> Everything made sense after that point, right? <laughs> oh, But it was beautiful because it starts at a young age, you know, like I had no feelings one way or another. It was something that I had picked up on from little boys. You know, sure. this homophobic rant, this thing that I picked up on from little boys at school, fitting in. And that speech that my dad gave me was, I mean, I'll never do it justice, whatever he said and how he said it. But from that moment forward, it was clear to me that we were wide open and, mm. you know, in, on this planet and, and how we were to experience life and, and desire and our relations to each other and all of this stuff. To the point where I eventually challenged my dad on, not in relation to that, but just in terms of like, well, how do you belong to one religion? 
God doesn't belong to one religion, you know, like <laughs> all mm -hmm. of this stuff. But that was a prime moment for me in terms of letting go of a socialization process that was just beginning and realizing, oh, that's just some bullshit that we don't actually have to entertain. Mm -hmm. Did you take that into your friend circle or into your classrooms? Did you challenge your teachers? Did you, when your friend said the word nigger or faggot, did you challenge anybody as a young kid? Do you remember? Well, in terms of faggot, yes. In mm -hmm. terms of nigger, no. The only time I would challenge anybody with the word nigger was if they were white. Mm -hmm. um, and that challenge was usually physical. <laughs> that happened but um but in terms of nigga no because we weren't allowed to say it because we were too young it was like cursing but my mm -hmm. dad used the word nigga beautifully oh, wow. <laughs> as many of our dads did i'd walk out in the morning and he'd be like hey little nigga Going on. <laughs> you know that was my name little nigga <laughs> you know, there's a lot mm -hmm. of our names and I was dying to be of age mm -hmm. to use the term nigga the way that I was hearing it in the community and, and what have you. I couldn't wait to be of age. Mm -hmm. um, and when I eventually became old enough, I, it was definitely uh, my go-to in terms of the flowering of my language. Um, mm -hmm. I was certainly um, using it quite a bit. And no, so yeah, that had to do with age. It wasn't like, don't ever say it. It had to do with age, but faggot, yes. And not just the word, but in terms of homophobia at large, one of my best friends growing up, his, and this is one of the hardest, crazy dudes, Malik is his name, who had two moms, kind of like, a, I guess I imagine a sort of Jay-Z situation or something. And so it was just prevalent in the community, mm -hmm. as it's always been. And there were no jokes to be made there. There were no jokes to be made there. There were full out trans kids in my high school. I mean, I guess part of it had to do with growing up in New York. So we were very exposed. Like it would take a lot to shock us. And then we were spending a lot, lot of time in the village and, and what have you. So we were, I guess, cultivated in that sense to just be open. Yes, it was something that we would challenge if we were confronted by it. Of course, we grew to hear to hear it even differently as time progressed, because you still would hear uh, guys say what they would consider like as a means of like deriding someone, like stop acting like a pussy or some sort. It also came embedded in a lot of language, mm. you know, and so only with time did I start hearing that and start challenging that. It's, which is something I practice to this day, even in relationship darkness. Sure. And the way that certain things are embedded in the language. So as someone who, whose imagination was one of their favorite activities, as a teen now, how did you imagine your life unfolding? You had this acting interest. Did you see yourself becoming famous or big actor or movie star, or making your $36 a minute? Like, what, How did you envision your life playing out? Interestingly for me, I had the fame bug kind of wiped out of me really quick. Mm. So in terms of the timeline, like, so 
by the time I'm 12, I guess, is when maybe the Cosby show and stuff is happening, which is holding auditions in New York. And so I'm like, parents, can I go audition for this? And I remember my, my dad being like, look, the type of exposure you'll get in that world at this age is bothersome. I remember him using like Drew Barrymore as an example, like, look at her. <laughs> look what they're saying in the news about this young girl. She's in rehab. She's the same age as you, you know, like all this stuff. But I'm not trying to discourage you from acting. And so instead of taking you to auditions, why don't we sign you up for an acting school? And so when I was 12, I started traveling to Greenwich Village by myself every weekend and taking classes at HB Studios. And then at 14, I started at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and HB Studios on Saturdays. Every weekend, I'd be in the village taking acting classes. And being in those acting classes, it shifted me from wanting to be famous to wanting to be good. Because that's what we were figuring out in class was when our performances were torn apart by the, the acting teachers who were like, I didn't believe you. You looked like blah, 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 blah. And we would spend so much time breaking down a performance that the thing that was most important to me was shining on stage and kind of getting it right. Did you know you were good when you were good in those moments or did they have to kind of tell you and you're like, really? That, that resonated with you guys? I might've been overconfident because I have more memories of thinking I was good and being told that I wasn't, Right. you know? A good example is when I'm 14 at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I did that Raisin in the Sun monologue, where Willie ran away with the money, <laughs> whatever. And, and I started the monologue up here. Mm -hmm. And I thought I was good because I was emoting loud. I was screaming. And I remember like, and the class, all the students were like, oh! and the teacher was like, that was bullshit. You know, <laughs> like you started here, meaning you had nowhere to go. Mm. You have to find like every monologue, everything is going to have a clear beginning, middle and ending. There has to be an arc where you have to take us somewhere. You can't just come in. Mm. And so I remember learning more so of the ways in which I thought I was doing something good and being told, actually, you're you're cheating. You're cheating yourself and the audience of an experience. Mm. It was more along those lines that I was learning because mind you, from third grade, every year there's normally like two or three school plays. I was in every school play from third grade till I finished high school. And the other thing, maybe the reason why I didn't dream of being famous is because my dream surrounded theater. Mm. It really surrounded theater. I was hardly thinking about movies mm. at all. I was, or movie star type shit. I was thinking about theater. Not until maybe Spike Lee came along did I go in my late teens where I was like, okay, I got to do a movie. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting because you're surrounded by all of these influences. You're exposed to these classes, right? I get the historical significance of going to Morehouse because obviously mm -hmm. I went to Howard. My brother, who you know, went to Morehouse. But it doesn't seem like that's the place you would go. You're already an hour from like the center of <laughs> acting on the East Coast. Why do you go to Morehouse for four years when you have all that talent and all that potential and all those connections? You're already going into the city every weekend as a teenager. That sort of thing was never 
an option in my house. <laughs> 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 I'll tell you what else wasn't an option. My sisters and I, we had to go to a black school. We had no okay. choice. My parents were clear from the time we were little. I'm only paying for your education if you go to a black college. Neither of my parents went to black colleges. They mm-hmm. just insisted that we did. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I only applied to one school, Morehouse. And I thought that that was okay. I knew I wanted to go to Morehouse when I was in elementary school, but that mm-hmm. was on some Martin Luther King shit. Mm-hmm. But by the time I graduated from high school, my decision to go with, to Morehouse was very much on some Spike Lee shit. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, if he was able to figure out, I'll be okay. But I had to go to college. There was no question about that. And I had to go to a black school. So I was just really clear. And then after years of watching a different world and kind of knowing, you know, there's always a fight. Is it based on Howard? Is it based on Morehouse, Spellman, Hillman? (laughs) (laughs) Either way, I was going to Morehouse. Yeah, it wasn't an option. The idea of like, I'm going to go straight into the business sort of thing. How was the quality of the acting program there? Because I'm surprised you didn't go study with Al Freeman at Howard. Yeah, well, one the acting program at Morehouse when I was there was non-existent. Mm. There was no acting program. It was at Spelman. Mm. So I took 100% of my, I have a BA in acting, 100% of my acting courses at Spelman. Now it makes sense. And for the listeners, Spelman is the (laughs) all-women college, historically Black college, across the street from Morehouse. And yes, that changed everything. (laughs) (laughs) That changed everything because the women and men that I studied under there immediately made that intersection between Black art, Black expression, womanism, feminism, progression, all of that was all bottled together. I had a playwriting class with Pearl Clegg who went on to become, she's an amazing playwright and an amazing, she's on, always been on Oprah's book club and all this type mm-hmm, of stuff. Mm-hmm. But she had just come out with a book called Mad at Miles when she was my professor about how it was a book of poetry and essays that was pretty much about how she had refused to listen to, Ma- to Miles Davis because when she heard his muted trumpet, she could hear the muted screams of Cicely Tyson being abused by him. And all, you know, wow. like, I remember, like, I was at Morehouse Spellman when, when The Chronic came out. I remember the chair of the department, Glenda Dickerson, coming into class one day and being like, Hold, I don't know what we were supposed to be studying, but I remember her saying, excuse me, excuse me, but I'm sorry to see women on this campus blasting a song. Did I hear correctly? Bitches ain't shit, but hold, did I hear correctly? <laughs> <laughs> Yo. But to be in that environment for that moment and being surrounded by so many amazing young thinkers, activists who at parties were like, I'm not dancing to that song because listen to what the fuck he's saying. And we were hip hop heads. We were dancers, actually. So to not dance was hard as fuck. Mm -hmm. But the critical listening, that critical gaze was enhanced so much by studying acting at Spelman. So, yeah. I did it at Spelman, actually, under Glenda Dickerson there and and numerous other amazing teachers at Spelman. So then you returned to New York. Now you're in your master's studies, NYU. 
Tisch School of the Arts. And that's where you first encounter Brooklyn Moon Cafe. Um, yeah. Talk about how that all went down. Were you living in Brooklyn? Were you living in Fort Greene? Yeah, I lived in Fort Greene. Okay. So I think it's my junior year of Morehouse. My friends and I decided that we're all hanging out. We're all artists. We're photographers, historians, poets. That I didn't identify as poet at all. I was an actor. 100%. You had Black Stacy under your belt. You'd written that in high school, I believe, right? So yeah, yeah, was... yeah, 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 yeah. But but because I was a rapper, right? I always identified as a rapper until well, not always. I stopped when I was sixteen or seventeen okay. because I figured I was too old to rap. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, I was trying to get signed when I was 14. I sent a demo to Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons when I was 14. They didn't respond, so I was like, fuck it. I give up. At 17, I quit. So we started a magazine when we were in Atlanta called Red Clay. And in that magazine, I decided I was going to have a section called Hump, H-U-H question mark. And I would start my section with a poem and then follow it with an essay, which would be about like social commentary or something. And so I point that out only because I had started writing poems, not to read. I didn't know anything about really like reading poetry aloud too much, but I had started writing poems and essays for my magazine that my friends and I started. And so then I moved to New York to go to grad school at NYU for acting there. And so that first year there, school started in August, I guess, that October, I met some other young artists in my neighborhood in Fort Greene who were like, I'm shooting a short film and you're an actor. I need an actor. Are you interested in being in it? Maybe it was through a friend of my sister or something. And uh, I ended up meeting a few other young artists. And one of them was a girl who was like, my boyfriend's a poet. You should come hear him read. And I was like, okay, I have shit to do. I didn't know anybody really, except for the 17 people in my acting program and my family deep in Brooklyn, but I didn't have any peers in the city per se. And so I was like, sure. And so that October, I went to a poetry reading and was blown away because, so this is 1994, October, 1994. It's right at the beginning of, the beginning of really what they start to call backpacker hip hop, right? Because the chronic and all that shit that came out in 92, like there's the heavily exploited commercial hip hop, which has gone really gangster one direction, you know? So Biggie, all this shit is happening. My people, all this shit is happening. And we're in New York, so we're feeling all that. But the De La Soul tribe side of things. Right, far side, all that. Far sides. It's now becoming called backpacker or underground. It's, it's Diggable and, planets. And, yeah, diggable, all this shit, right? And there's a world in between that. And I show up at this poetry reading in October 94, and I'm like, oh, oh. Because I'm seeing a bridge between sort of like the literary arts that we come from the tradition of, the Miri Barakas, the Sonia Sanchez's, the Maya Angelou's, the Bell Hooks, the, the, you know, all these Audre Lords, all this stuff, and the hip hop. I meet all these, I don't really meet them, but I see all these poets perform this night, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. I would love to read at one of those things. And so cut to March, 1995, right after spring break, from NYU, I had spent that spring break hanging out with some friends from the forest and outside of Seattle, in Washington State. 
And I flew back to Brooklyn and took the train. I don't know. I took the train home from the airport somehow. I don't think that line existed. I don't know how I got back home, but I know it wasn't a taxi. And, um, and dragging my bag home, I pass a window, the Brooklyn Moon Cafe, that's just foggy. And I'm like, must be a lot of people inside. I'm going to put my bag down and come back and see what it is. And on that trip, I had written one poem called Amethyst Rocks. I'd written it on this trip. And I, with that poetry reading I saw in October in mind, like if I ever encounter reading again. And so I put my bag down, I go into that cafe and it's packed and it's a poetry reading. And that girl's boyfriend, who I went to meet that first time, is the host. And he's like, do you want to read something? I'm like, put my name on the list. And so I was the last name put on the list. And I debuted that poem. The people I met that night, I mean, those are, that's Jessica Caremore, that's Yasin Bey, Uzmostef, Talib Kweli, Mums the Schemer, all these people who are still in my world, I met them all that night, March 16, 1995. And I remember it because I read that poem. I had a little Urban Outfitters journal. Urban Outfitters used to have these dope little <laughs> like fake moleskin journals that fit in your pocket. And so I'd written that poem there and the amount of time that I'd spent writing it when I got up on stage at the end of the night was like, I know this thing. I put the journal away and just recited it. And in fact, that wasn't happening a lot at the moment, right? Mm -hmm. And I read that poem. And when I finish, one, as I'm reading, I notice this girl in the front seat, front row crying. And then I finish and the poetry reading is over. And a person comes up to me and is like, hey, Allen Ginsberg's going to be reading at NYU next month. I'd love you to open up for him. Someone else says, uh, Nikki Giovanni and... Sonia Sanchez will be doing a reading at Medgar Evers College next month. We'd love you for, to open up for them. Someone else says the Fugees and KRS-One are performing in Union Square at Rock Against Racism. We'd love you to open up for them. Someone else said the last poets and Gil Scott doing a show at SOB. We'd love you to open up for them. And I had one poem and March 16th, 1995. <laughs> the friends I made that night are, like I said, still my friends and the doors that opened are the doors that I walked. Did you know that you killed it after the poem was over? I know you say you saw the woman crying, but did you feel that, like we were talking about earlier, where you had the overconfidence and all that, but your teacher kind of talked you into taking people on a journey. So it sounds like you had all the skills that all kind of came to a head that night, right? You put the thing away, it was just your script, essentially. You yes. gave a monologue. You probably started low. You went up high. You took them through that journey. And then it's just like everything just paid off in that moment. Very much that in the sense that what was unique about that night and about that experience was that, so by that time, I had already done at least 20 plays mm. more, you know? So I was very comfortable on the stage, but surrounded by poets, not all of whom were comfortable on the stage. Some were sharing very vulnerable work that they were scared to share. But me, I was literally like studying acting and was really comfortable in terms of performance per se, that moment is best described by the film, The Matrix, that moment where he leans back and you see the bullet in slow-mo. <laughs> I felt, I saw the words coming out of me and the mm. way that I related to it at the time, and I think it's the same way I relate to it now, has a, a lot to do with the fact that my dad was a pastor and that he had always referred to his profession as a calling. Mm. And I'd always had to defend myself 
from old ladies at church with, who would be like, are you going to follow in your father's footsteps? Which I always thought was crazy anyway, because I was like, isn't it supposed to be a calling? You can't make that decision. Not for the ministry. That's supposed to be a calling. What are you talking right. about? Were you paying attention in church? I had that in my head, but I would always defend myself by saying, well, no, uh, the stage, not the pulpit is my calling. and that night i remember reflecting on the idea of calling because i had also identified as a rapper for a long time i had been a battle mc of course as an actor but here i was in this new world reciting a poem that i had written and i had felt more empowered and felt like i was touching people and myself in ways that made me excited to write more and to explore more of myself. And I felt that I was on the precipice of calling that night. And I did feel like what you said was that all of these things were coming to a head. All the time spent reading and rereading works by Shakespeare and studying plays. And because what studying theater does to your, the type of attention you pay to literature is golden because you're there breaking down like, what does the author mean? What does the character mean? When in the middle of this sentence does the character change your mind? Mm -hmm. They change your mind in the middle of this phrase. They say it's this and then they start to look at the stage direction. When do they change their mind when they were saying this? So you're, you're really getting into the nitty gritty of what's between the lines when you're studying what other people have written as an actor. But when you go to write, suddenly all that studying pays off because mm-hmm. now you know that if someone were to sit with your work, they would be doing the same thing. And that intention, that research, all that psychological work goes into the writing process. It was interesting because I was excited. I was more so excited about writing more. Performance was like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But the fact that here was a way in which I could perform things that I had written, and it wasn't that I was dreaming of becoming a writer. It was more so that here was a a sort of unbuilt bridge that we were tasked with constructing between our literary heroes and our hip-hop heroes Mm -hmm. and fusing these worlds. Because in fact, I remember thinking quite intensely about the fact that our ears for our generation had been primed differently because we had grown up listening to hip hop, because we had listened to Lottie Dottie and with your, well, you can't be my, all the stuff where we were just like paying attention. Like, did you hear what he said? Wait, rewind that. (laughs) All of that type of special attention that we paid had us tuned in and primed for the spoken word movement that was to come there because we were listening like that. Mm. And so to take away the music, which is also something that had been part of my practice because I spent a lot of time writing rhymes as a kid. And I spent so much time writing rhymes that when I would be in a battle and the beatbox, I've always felt like half these beatboxes were sloppy. Mm. So I'd be like, no beat, no beat, no beat, yo, no beat, just listen. And I'd go in like that, just words. And so I was already in the mind state when I was a rapper of like, no beat. Let me do my shit so you can hear the wordplay. So it was really all of these things coming to a head.
how did you manage the ego component of being someone who could get up there off book and deliver a poem that would have people crying, right? And then you get all this adulation and all these invitations. Like, did you feel I'm the shit in this community? I'm brand new to this community, but I'm already, were you around all the time after that night? Or would you make yourself a little scarce? Like, what was your, what was your relationship with all that leading up to slam? I was a hundred percent there. I was never like thinking in terms of making myself scarce. I was scarce because I couldn't come until after. I was always in play practice until 11 or midnight. So I arrived at every poetry reading late because I was coming straight from play practice. And that's a fact. That was just what it was. You, you know? weren't trying to be cool. <laughs> no, I wasn't trying to be cool. It was like I had play practice, you know. Right. But I also felt like that play practice primed me. Like there's a stage in this motherfucker. I know we're all writers here, but we did it on stage. And so it wasn't ego, although there was this sort of thing of like, I felt like I had, I was building up my chops. A jazz musician would talk about just like building up their chops from just playing every night. I was playing every day at school and then going out at night and playing. So I was just in the thing. There was really no place for ego hmm. in any of that. There was no place for ego, really. The, the way where I became frightened, and this is the other thing, because with the poetry community and with the work that we were doing then, I knew exactly what I was doing when I wrote a poem that was different from what I was doing when I was writing a rap. Mm. And one of the things I was doing, and it starts with the poem Amethyst Rocks, like it was a conscious decision that like braggadocio, that confidence as a rapper can go a long way. I'm the coolest motherfucker, you know, all this shit could go a long way. And so I decided that if I'm writing a poem, if I'm going to use I, then that I has to be us and I have to brag about us and our relationship to spirit, our relationship to the infinite. I have to excuse myself from it if it's going to be an I. And so there was already a sort of a checking of the ego that was happening in the writing practice from the jump. And also because there was no, you know, no poets were going up there writing poems about why they were the freshest. We were writing poems about how we had been traumatized or had fallen in love or what we dreamed for our community or blah, 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 blah. So there was really no room for that. It was just a great movement to be a part of. You also mentioned that you saw the poetry as an algorithm or you saw it as sort of coding. What did you mean by that? Well, that realization started there, right? So I stand on the corner of the block slinging amethyst rocks, drinking 40s of Mother Earth's private nectar stock, dodging cops. All this shit had to do with slang and terminology that anybody who grew up in hip hop would identify with immediately, mm -hmm. right? But put on a page or alone without music on a stage for someone who was not coming from that reality, it may have sounded like, the fuck? Yo, this is science fiction. This is crazy. What the, what is this, right? And so that thing about the algorithm and all that, the coded language, and what I realized we were playing with was essentially a few years later when I started getting invited to universities to present mm. my work and realizing that at that time, I, I felt like a traveling salesman who was there to show the new efficiency and language that we had found. Here's how you can say this now. 
you've been looking for a way to say that we are connected to the all and that our struggle, which is not over, is opening a gateway in our consciousness and awareness, whereas we see all that we've been and all that we are and blah, 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 all this shit. Like, uh, this is how these poems essentially like were hacking into and finding shortcuts in saying stuff, one that we all kind of knew or felt in a in sense of like the Black experience. But here's a, a quicker way to say it. It's just like the term nigga in a sense, which is like a, you know, a sort of like flash drive that has all these things in it that carries so much hmm. in it. But yes, at the time I was talking about the idea of, of the algorithm and, and the sort of coding and decoding was that we were and are using language in a way that abbreviates the experience for the sake of progressing it to the next chapter. And this is what language does. This is what language does. So when you're able to, you know, like the Tao says that naming is the beginning of all particular things, right? And of course, when something is named, well, one, there's something that is potentially lost by it being named, right? But then there's something that abbreviates the experience because you no longer have to talk around the experience. You can just call it what it is and keep moving. Mm -hmm. That's some white supremacist bullshit and keep moving. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and so being able to label things can allow us to, you know? And so that's the sort of like lyrical hopscotch that we were playing at that moment as those of us who were branding ourselves as like the children of Octavia Butler, who were branding ourselves as the children of Audre Lorde and Asada Shakur and, and all this stuff and trying to make sense of the aversion that we had, because the other thing that was very special about the poetry movement at that time is that this is at the moment where the Black capitalists of hip hop were exploding and being celebrated for those capitalistic choices. Mm -hmm. And the poetry scene was very much like, that's not what I'm here to talk about. It's interesting. I was just going to mention that because you obviously have a sort of anti-capitalism message in your, a lot of your work today. And you were also being sheltered because you're still pretty much in school at that time. But, you know, when you get into the real, the quote unquote real world, you got to pay your bills, you got to pay your rent and all of that. And you're getting offered all these things. How much were you thinking about the exchange or the transactions at that time? Or were you just saying yes to everything because you knew that was going to lead to more exposure and give your message a lot more weight? Well, being me, I was thinking about this stuff all of the time. <laughs> all of the time. All of the time. So first right. off, I should start by saying that that summer of 1995, mm -hmm. during that March 19th, March 16th, I randomly, by saying yes to a bunch of stuff, was able to pay my New York City rent that summer from poetry gigs, all of which I had accepted without realizing that I was being paid. Mm. I remember arriving to the first one, doing my thing, but bye-bye. I told my mom about it, and then I got off stage, and the person who invited me, Bob Holman, was like, and so here's some money for you, da 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 And I was like, what? <laughs> and I had no idea. I didn't expect it. And then I was asked to do a reading for, like, NYU Medical School Black 
doctors organization, all this stuff that first summer. And they'd be like, and here's your, I'd be like, what, what, what? It was just shocking to me. But it, but that is my own naivete, huh? Because I mean, even when, when I was in undergrad and I had done my first professional play in Atlanta, I remember auditioning and getting the role in the South African play, My Children, My Africa in 1992 and being told that I was gonna be given a salary of $150 a week. And I remember being like, well, wait, but you don't have to because actually I'm in school, I have a scholarship and and like, I don't know, I was trying to save the theater money. I have no idea, but I was like, you don't understand. I love acting, I would do this for free. The fact that people would pay me to do something that I love just struck me as ludicrous at the time. So there was a level of naivete on my part. So then, of course, becoming the figurehead of the sort of movement and being offered money nonstop. Yes, it it had me questioning stuff. I came across a poem a few days ago going through an old journal and the poem paraphrased, I know it began with, they are preparing to introduce me to their God. And I was talking about money. And I know there's a line in there like, no gold is gold enough to tempt the darkness from these minds. And I I think that might've been when like Slam was heading to Cannes to the film festival there or something. And I had this sense of, I had to be very careful. I had to be very careful because I felt like what happened in March of 95 and everything that had happened had only happened because I had opened my mouth to talk about particular things in a particular way and that that's what had to lead the way. Mm. I mean, all of those thoughts are embedded in the film Slam. And, and, and I should preface this by saying that it's in October 1994 when I began meditating, mm. when I began the practice, practice of sitting for meditation, which is to say before that march. And so I was already in a meditative practice and had gone through a horrendous breakup and had discovered this inner world and its connection to the all. And so I carried my journal in one pocket, I carried the Tao in another every day. So I was superstitious about it. And I carried a piece of amethyst in my front left pocket, Hmm. which is where the opening line of carrying amethyst rocks is because I was like, I would hold it as I was walking down the street, trying to stay centered and grounded. So the question of ego and all of these things, because I felt, I had already felt as if my ego had led to this sort of what I had deemed as a betrayal in a relationship and all this type of stuff, like the role of ego, I was already in the practice of questioning. Right. So those early years were very much about remaining centered from the beginning. Right. As these things were coming and going, yeah, 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 I see. Whatever. Talk about, I know there's a story floating around out there that you were offered an opportunity to write for the movie Slam, but then you somehow finagled your way into acting in the film. What's the story behind that? Yeah, so March 1995. So come one year later, in March, April 1996, I make my first trip to the New Yorkian Poets Cafe 
because my friend Mums, who just passed recently, had ventured there and was like, yo, they have these slams there. It's a competitive, and I'm like, competitive? Because we were at the Brooklyn Moon doing open mics. It was no competition, right. you know? It was more like church of the irreverent. <laughs> like we were just trying to give each other the spirit and hyping each other up and, and all of this type of shit. So the idea of competitive was weird. But he was like, yo, they do give you 50 bucks if you win. And we did have to pay bills. And he's like, and I saw a dude who did it get a publishing deal, Paul Beatty. So we were like, what? Let's go check it out. So I went in March the following year, a year into doing poetry and won. And I found out that the night that I won was the last night to qualify you for the yearly competition. And so because I won that night, I was now going to be in the semifinals. So I went again that March, 1995, 96, and won that which then meant I was going to be in the, the finals in April 1996. Now, mind you, during that time, things are happening. Not only am I in school, my daughter Saturn is born in April 1996. And that April before, yeah, I guess the night of the Grand Slam, there's a New York Times journalist there who asked a few questions, whatever. I wasn't it was interesting. The whole time, now I will say this, you asked about ego and da, 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 did I ever think I was a shit? No, never. But from that time in March 95, the magic in the room for all of us was felt. Mm. And so there were always people showing up with cameras and like, I want to make a documentary and all this shit. We knew that we were on the cusp of something crazy. We felt like we were the new, like, lyrical Octavia Butler meets, da, 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 you know, like, we knew as a collective that we were on the cusp of something crazy. And Erica Badu was there. Like I said, Yasin Bey was there. None of these people were famous. All of these people were there. And all of them were like, yo, what the fuck are we participating in? This is wild. And there'd be the occasional famous rapper Common or Pharaoh Manch or Wu-Tang or, or De La that would show up and be like, yo, you guys are doing something crazy. Have you thought about adding music? <laughs> you know, we knew that. So when I say that there was a New York Times journalist a year later, by that time, I was already used to the fact that we knew that we were on the cusp of something with poetry and we're used to like journalists from Denmark and Norway and all over the place coming in like, we want to capture this new uh, spoken word craziness in New York. So I remember talking something, but anyway, I won the Grand Slam that night and that was on a Friday. That Sunday, I wake up to a call from my dad, which is already weird because my dad's in church on Sunday. He's mm. a pastor, you know? <laughs> so um, like, what are you doing on the phone? Aren't you supposed to be in the pulpit? <laughs> and he's like, your poem's on the front page of the Sunday Times. Wow. And sure enough, I'd run out and get a New York Times and I'd see my poem on the front page of the, of the New York Times, an excerpt of a poem. And sure enough, that day or that Monday, I have tons of calls from literary agents, lecture booking agencies, all this shit. I'm still in school. I have a daughter that is three weeks old. But yes, I do strongly have that sense that 
this thing, and this is what I tried to capture in my book, The Dead MC Scrolls, this thing that we're writing about, it's only happening because of what we're talking about in our poetry. We are just the vessels. My cat wanted to make a cameo. And <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> and so there was a very protective space around making sure that we were putting our all into what we were saying and not misleading anyone and making sure that the text was open and progressive. And, you know, like, it's like creating a site and making sure that it's open source and all this type of stuff. All of that stuff was embedded in the work intentionally. And so as all these other things came, there was a sense of, yeah, yeah, but of course, I get it now. I get it now. As soon as we tune into that thing, it always brought me back to that Rock Kim lyric where he was like, they'll be like, yo, we had a get together last week and we know everyone was there except the black sheep. And he says, it's one thing I don't need is a spotlight because I already got light. And that sense with the poetry was that as soon as we tune into our inner sense of worth and greatness and in our in our connection to each other and, and the all and all of this, then of course the outside role would be like, hey, 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 that's interesting, buddy. That's interesting. And it was like, okay, uh-uh, I might be interested, but I'm protecting this thing. Hmm. So Mark Levin, the director of SLAM, was in the Grand SLAM championship that night. And he didn't approach me, though. That's April 96. I didn't meet him until September of 96. And between April and September, I did a dozen other poetry readings. And I didn't know it, but he was at each one. And so when, I, when he meets me in September of 96 and invites me to his office saying, I have a film concept I'd like to talk to you about, the first thing he does is he presses play. One, I'm impressed by this now. I'm in acting school still. I'm in my second year now. I'm in acting school. This guy says he's a film director and he invites me to his company's office. And it's a huge fucking, they have the entire floor of this huge building in New York with film posters, Robert Downey Jr., all this shit. I'm like, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, but all the time I'm like, poetry brought me here. This is right. so we're very protective of this thing. So he hits play on this thing, and on the screen is footage of me at all these different performances between April and that September in Montreal. All this shit. What the fuck is a stalker? <laughs> He's like, I've been watching you, and so he tells me his story of doing these documentaries and prison life and gang culture. And, and that he had been, you know, reflecting heavily on what some of the kids in gangs had said to him. He had done this documentary called Gang Banging in Little Rock, which was maybe the first time there was ever footage of a drive-by in a documentary or some shit. And, and he was like, when I asked the kids, when I spoke to the kids, they would always be like, yo, when are you going to do a real movie? He's like, this is a real movie. And they were like, no, you know, like when they show in the mall. Hmm. So he decided he wanted to do a fiction. And he was like, and I've been watching your work. And I really would like to ask you to co-write this thing with me. Now, I had been writing for myself for the stage. And I was dreaming of acting. And I was in grad school for acting. And so my initial response was, right. You understand that I'm on my lunch break right now from the grad acting program at NYU. It's hard to get into that school. I'm an actor, yo. Right? 
<laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But you're a great writer. I don't know if anyone's told you, but you're a great writer and, and a great performer I see, great performer. But your writing is really, and I wasn't ready to hear anything about my writing separated from performing. Right. So that came as a shock. And I was pretty point blank with like, I don't know if I can agree to writing something without performing in it, you know, honestly. And I think that week it was Bones Malone who got arrested and thrown in prison. <laughs> Maybe he was already in prison. No, Bones had been in prison already since April. He had been in prison and had said to him, yo, no, 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 no. You should let that kid act. Like he reached out to Bones and he was planning on having Bones Malone be the main character. He was like, no, no, you should let that kid act. If I get out in time, I'll be in the film, but you should let that kid do it. And so thanks to Bones Malone, Mark getting arrested. Oh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> he was open to me acting in the film. And so then did, I could write. Did he make you audition? No, 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 no. What he did is he connected me to Sonia Song, Mums mm -hmm. Schemer, and Bo Sia, all poets that he had encountered by spying at the poetry readings. Mm -hmm. And he brought us together and said, you are the four poets that I'd love to help piece this thing together. Mm. And we have an idea of a story that's taught. And so we spent nine months, a lot of times doing improv in front of a camera, surrounding ideas, then watching the tape and going, ah, oh, that works, that works, and writing down what worked from the improvs. And we ended up with a 35-page outline, as opposed to a script of the story that we all worked out together. And then we went to shoot, and we shot the film in, in nine days. We shot it mm -hmm. in D.C. jail all the through prisoners, as you probably know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously it won Sundance, it won Cannes. How did you deal with the notoriety? I mean, this is what you've been working your whole life to become is, you know, this known presence in entertainment. So obviously you got a lot of attention. I don't know if having the attention ever really matches the expectation of what it may feel like when you get all that attention. But you have a lot of attention now, obviously, but when it was first starting beyond the poetry cafes and whatnot, like I saw that film in wherever I was. I think it was in New York or wherever I was at the time. I saw it by myself and it, I was completely spellbound when I came out of there and told everybody they needed to go see it. And then I would run into you in New York City from time to time. And I was always like, oh, wow, that's Saul Williams, right? On the subway with his daughter and the baby character, yeah. you know, at this restaurant yeah. or whatever. And I would start going to these poetry readings. So I'm just one of many people coming up to you probably all the time. How did you handle that for yourself? The poetry was the star. It was interesting. I handled it strategically. So what I had realized around that time was that like, this is right around the time when like, it seemed like the only young black male actors getting work were rappers. You know, mm -hmm. they were taking all the work from the train. So like the fact that I was a trained actor wasn't really helping me, you know? <laughs> Yeah, they'd be like, you sound like a trained actor. Could you sound more, uh, which was some bullshit. But anyway, <laughs> but it was part of the thing that made me go, well, maybe I should focus on making an album since mm -hmm. that's the gateway into getting more acting jobs. Maybe I should do that. Plus, I knew that if I did, or I felt like if I 
made too much buzz as an actor, it would be weird. I'd never be taken seriously as a musician. So I then focused my attention immediately on the other things that I wanted to do so that I could do them all at the same time and it would go like that. And so I ended up signing with Rick Rubin and doing a book deal with Simon and Schuster, right? I think both before Slam even came out. And I was focused on drum and bass and, blah, 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 and I was just like, okay, okay, I got to make sure that I make headway in this world as well so that none of them grow faster than the. I was just busy being strategic, having fun. And the main thing was this, though. This is the most crazy thing in terms of ego, was that with the music question, that was the first time I really got confronted by ego, mm -hmm. personally, where I was questioning, is this purely an, an egoic, if that's a word, pursuit? Am I only doing this for ego? Because the main thing was this, was that at that moment with Slam and every moment that followed, was the sense that we were living in a state of emergency. The same way we'll feel it now. It may be hard for people to comprehend, but we felt the same exact way then. There were police murders. There was all this craziness in the hood and in society and systemic. It was crazy. And SLAM, which was about the criminal justice system and the war on drugs, <laughs> which is like, the same exact shit that we're focused on right now. It felt crucial to spark that flame and to keep on attacking those big questions through the work, right? I remember, for example, after Slam being asked to do something in theater and being like, theater feels like a delicacy right now, which was the weirdest thing for me to say because I grew up in theater loving it. And suddenly I'm like, no, it's a state of emergency. We have to do something that's going to more people, not just people who can pay $80 for a ticket. There was a state of emergency that, that I felt at the time. And with music, when Rick Rubin came into play, because that's the first time like that a lot of money started popping up, money that I, I'd never heard of, you know, like you get offered a record deal and that's a, a large amount. And then the next day, the manager is like, and you're being offered a publishing deal for the same amount. I'm like, what, wait, what, what is that? <laughs> and so having to learn what music publishing is and contemplating doubling what I already thought was a lot, all this shit, you know what I'm saying? And thinking, okay, this would be the moment where I would get fucked up hmm. if I'm not careful. And so this is when I'm like bumping into you at Whole Foods or some shit, or at, at that time it would be Erewhon. Right. <laughs> the old era. Back to Erewhon now. Dude. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the amount of meditation, the amount of reading, the amount of wanting to be mindful and not waste any opportunity. I always felt like it would be crazy to take any opportunity and be like, okay, look at how fresh I am when I could use that same opportunity to say, Let's think and talk about this. Right. Yeah, you've also talked about how you're not really make, creating content, music, whatever, for now, as much as you're creating it for 30 years from now, like the next generations. Because admittedly, your whole presence and what you talk about, you're almost like a provocateur. You know, it's very confronting for a lot of people. And that's intentional. 
right? Because you've been accused, of course, of being weird and strange, but you're like, no, weird and strange is what's normal. What's not normal is trying to fit in and say the yes. right, the politically correct thing. So how intentional was that? When did you, when you feel like you started like down that very, very intentional path in your work? That too is all in, like I'm operating to this day off of a number of epiphanies and glimpses of whatever that all circle around this moment that you're asking me about. It's all from that. And there were confirmations around all along the way. I mean, like the first time I met Rick Rubin, mm -hmm. he's like, your poetry, wow. And he brings me to his house. And I mean, his house, fucking hell. And uh, out in Malibu? No, this before that. This is when it's on Miller Drive, right behind what used to be the Tower Records. Okay. On Sunset. Yeah. And there's this huge, like 12-foot Buddha and literally, he brings me into his house. He has this recording of Kabir. Like, who is it? Robert Frost reading Kabir with the sitar. Mm -hmm. And he presses play on this recording, crosses his legs, closes his eyes. And for the next 45 minutes, we just sit there in meditative stance, listening to Kabir and this sitar. That's our first meeting. And then when the side of the cassette is over. <laughs> he goes, so are you ready to make an album? And we're just like, like, yeah. I was like, well, actually, I sent a cassette to you when I was 14. And I think it's taken you at the time. I'm probably like 26. I'm like, I think it's taken you an extremely long time for you to respond to that cassette. And in the meanwhile, I would say that hip hop has changed a lot and, and you've gone on, you're doing the chili peppers and all this stuff. And, and I think you owe a debt actually to come mm -hmm. back to hip hop and blah, 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 blah. It, like, it was this weird conversation, but it started with meditation, right? I'm forgetting your question in terms of, I want to circle back to what you asked. Yeah, which you was remember what about, yeah, which is about you having this very intentional focus on pushing the envelope and getting people, provoking people, confronting people and getting them to kind of look at their own level of self-actualization or lack thereof. Yeah. I mean, I think... But I, I like the Rick Rubin story. I want you to finish the Rick Rubin story. <laughs> <laughs> so there's what, so what many happens? Rick Rubin stories. Does he, what do you guys create something at that moment in time or? No. So the next thing that happens is at that time, I'm living in New York, right? But I'm visiting LA because I had a concert and he picks me up from the concert and takes me to his house. That happens. I fly back home. We decide we're going to do this. The lawyers and managers and da da da, we're going to do this. And so he's in New York for the weekend with Chris Rock, I remember, because him and Chris Rock show up at one of my like weird art gallery shows. And the next day, he's like, meet me at my hotel, Central Park West, whatever. And I meet him and we're walking through Central Park. And I just, Jessica Caremore had just published my first manuscript called The Seventh Octave, which had been a conscious choice and which points to what you're talking about. I, all these offers had come after my poetry was on the front page of the New York Times. But my friend Jessica was starting a, a publishing company on her own. And so at the time, 
I decided to keep it independent and to publish through a friend mm. as opposed to dealing with a major yet because I didn't think that it was the right time. And so it was choices like that. But here I was walking through Central Park with Rick Rubin, right? Mm. And so Rick is holding my book, The Seventh Octave, and he goes, Saul, you're a great writer. And then he pulls from his pocket a double CD of the Beatles' White Album. And he goes, Saul, you're a great writer. This is songwriting. Learn the difference. Mm. When you have 20 songs, we'll go into the studio. And that's that. The next day, I live in Brooklyn at the time. I don't know, about $10,000 worth of equipment shows up at my house. Keyboards and actually this keyboard <laughs> mm. <laughs> and some other shit that I no longer have, but this keyboard. And I don't, I've never made music before. I've only written raps, but I'm like, I'm about to make music. <laughs> and yeah, so the next year, within a few months, I moved to LA. Right. And I would invite him to my house to hear like, yo, I got eight songs. You need to come hear these. He'd come by the house and he'd be very critical. That's not a song. That's just a very long chorus. And, and he'd be gone about song structure. And I'd be like playing him music. Like we'd be in his car and we'd be exchanging stuff. I'd play him Portishead and drum and bass shit. None of which he had heard before, right? And he'd be like, interesting. And then I'm like, do you like Jeff Buckley? And he's like, I love his voice, but I hate his song structure. Like, who is this guy? What the fuck? You know? <laughs> so eventually, eventually we agree on the songs that I've written that are songs mm. that end up making the album. But anyway, yeah, Rick, I was going to say, though, was someone who was very much into meditation. Mm -hmm. And veganism, um, too. Veganism. So all these things that were also a part of my world and that I thought was crucial to protect the sacred space of what was being created. I felt very much like he was about that. But at the time, I wasn't ready for all that he was presenting. There were some ways in which I thought he was trying to throw me off my path, in which I realize now that he wasn't. But I just wasn't ready because I was too naively protecting my work. And what mm -hmm. I mean by that, for example, is that at the time, DJ Screw was alive, chopped and screwed stuff from Houston. And he sent me like 20 DJ Screw mixtapes. He was like, think about this. And I only heard some of the lyrics. <laughs> I was like, what are you trying to get me to think about? Without thinking about the fact that he was in 90, you know, like Mike Wall and all this shit, the popularization of Chopped and Screwed shit is the mid 2000s. It's the late 90s. He's trying to get me to do some Chopped and Screwed shit with my poetry. And I wasn't ready to hear it, unfortunately. Mm. <laughs> well, you you've evolved into it's, it's almost like you have your own genre of music. That's what it sounds like to me. And something that I I'm very impressed with. This is one of the reasons why I like Kanye West. Like a lot of people don't like Kanye. I love Kanye West. I love his production value. But more so than that, I love his storytelling. He like you can play any one of his albums from beginning to end and you hear a story. Yeah. And you take it to the next level, right? It's almost like you approach it like a screenwriter or an actor where you come up with the whole backstory of this character and these <laughs> sub-characters and these plots and subplots. 
then you create from that space. Was that something that you were very intentional about when you first started your music production? Or is that something that it kind of evolved into? Because it's almost like you brought in all of your acting experience into your music. Yeah. It's something that... Including a character that you create for each album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that I've been... Because it's also in the poetry books, too. In, mm-hmm. in in my poetry books, I've tried to... It's like trying to get closer and closer to writing a novel or a screenplay. You know, like, I did decide early on, around the time of the earliest poems, that I wanted to tell a new generation of folktales, a new generation of storytelling and what have you. And so, yes, it is intentional in that I've worked to conceptualize these stories and to challenge myself more and more in terms of how much of a story we can tell and share through a medium. But that really comes from the fact that I really come from musical theater. And I know we're not going to talk much about where we are now. However, I will say that I've spent the past seven years writing a musical which I shot last year and finished shooting right before the pandemic began in Rwanda and have spent the entirety of quarantine in post-production for my first musical, which will, for anyone who's followed my career, will make all the sense in the world when you see it in terms (laughs) of (laughs) the storytelling, the performance, and I'm not in it. The performance, the music, all of this stuff. Then it's like, okay, like I came to realize that all of that stuff was to prepare me Mm. for what I'm doing now. And what I'm doing now is that and working on a series of graphic novels. So it's Mm -hmm. all like illustrated word and and all of this stuff. So, yeah, it was intentional. And yes, I'm with you in terms of loving storytelling and music. I mean, earlier today, I went for a walk before we spoke, but before I went for that walk, I had music on shuffle and Jimi Hendrix Machine Gun came on. And I don't know if you're familiar with that recording, but Jimi Hendrix Machine Gun is recorded like, it's only recorded live. There's no studio recording of it. And it's recorded like the year that he died, Mm. right? And he's singing about Vietnam and at some point he makes his guitar sound like machine guns and all like it's crazy but he's painting a picture with sound that is a movie which got me into thinking about and then listening to another one of his songs which is called 1983 which is has that beautiful moment uh, so down and down and down and it's all sci-fi mermaids and all this type of stuff In fact, my favorite musicians, storytellers, but particularly in music, do just what you're talking about. When I think of Nina Simone, whether it's Four Women or Pirate Jenny, you know, which is adapted from the Bertolt Brecht song, like there's storytelling there in Fela, when he, one of my favorite Fela songs, Coffin for Head of State, which is him telling the story of how he carried his mother's coffin to the president's house and said, you motherfuckers killed her, you bury her, Mm -hmm. right? And it's so meta because he wrote a song to perform for the carrying of the coffin, about the carrying of the coffin, about how they killed her, and about what he's demanding of the 
presidency and it's happening and the music has the story and the text tells the story and it's just it's concept building and world building that is just on a level so yeah i'm into that You've also said a couple of things. We're going to wrap up in a second. You said a couple of things that really stood out to me in my research. Uh, when someone once asked you about the Nike commercial that used your song, the reparations, you said, look, I didn't do a Nike commercial. Nike did a Saul Williams commercial, right? <laughs> which, kind of sp- <laughs> which, which kind of speaks to the idea of shifting what we consider to be mainstream. And then you also talked about how your love for different genres, it's not that you explore these various genres to balance yourself, to feel balance, it's that you get balance from the genres. And I may be butchering that a little bit, but what I love about your work is that you just, you take this, it's not a contrarian view, it's just, it's almost like this is what reality actually is and everything that we've kind of grown accustomed to as reality is what we really need to be questioning. And so, you know, you have like your presence and the wardrobe that you wear and and the lyrics that you have and all of that. It's causing us to really think about what we sort of normalized, including what you've said about capitalism and about the perpetuation of this idea that in order to, I guess, catch up with white people or be successful, we need to emulate the same level of capitalism we need to to acquire things and you know you made a point in one of your talks about how the people who have made the biggest changes didn't really have anything well yeah they had a lot but the thing that they were counting wasn't necessarily money right materially yeah exactly well first like when you talk about that sense of the mainstreaming of of ideas or of ideology I guess I feel part of that because my observation has often been with the cyclical nature of the popularity of poetry itself. Like here we are on the precipice once again of a poet being on the cover of Vogue and Time Magazine and all this stuff since the inauguration of the amazing poet Amanda Gorman, right? Mm -hmm. And there's that spoken word moment that you remember from that we've been referring to, you know, from the late nineties and two thousands. And before that there's Gil Scott Heron and the last poets. And it seems like every 20 years, poetry makes its way from the periphery to the mainstream. And it seems like when it does, part of the poet's job is to say, yo, the periphery is where it's at. (laughs) You know, like the shit that, you're calling uh, the mainstream is really just the oil slicks on the ocean. Go deeper, go deeper. And so that process of participating in that, observing that happening and being very careful about what we share and what is mainstreamed in that process, right? Because of course, the industry just needs to regurgitate and recycle and in order to feed itself but we are hoping to deliver something that actually feeds, that actually sustains a new generation of thinkers and activists and human beings, you know? And so with the Nike thing, I remember quite simply reading the Tao once again, and the Tao said, you know, the master does her work and walks away. 
the people will marvel and blah, 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 blah. But the master doesn't really get to experience that because she's on to the next task at hand. And it's always been about the work. And I think at the end of the day, my justification with the, and I've done a million collaborations with, with I just finished doing a Louis Vuitton campaign, right? Where I was asked to write and then eventually asked to perform. But at the time with the Nike thing, which is 2008, the thought was simply that they didn't ask me to write anything. They asked, could they use something that I had written that I already knew what I had embedded that song with? Mm. I knew every amount of energy. In fact, I wrote that song in this room, mm. this very room that I'm talking to you from right now. I recorded that song in this room. And I know it's in this room. I literally have been in this room that long. Mm. And so then I saw it as like a challenge. Like, what do you think is going to happen? Are they going to put that in a, in a commercial and people are going to run to see what they're selling? Are they going to run to see what I'm singing? Mm. What do you think is going to happen? I know it's in my song. I don't know what's in your shoe. <laughs> at the time it felt like a no-brainer i was like sure sure it would probably be a completely different thing if they had asked me to write something mm -hmm. at the time so yeah. you've mentioned that your kids you credit your kids with your success you have a daughter you have a son what did you mean by that well what being a parent before any of this stuff happened did was just get me thinking in a less selfish way although i have to follow that up by saying that by being an artist who's consumed with career and all this stuff i think that there's always going to be a level of selfishness i think it's i think it's a great challenge to be the child of an artist when parents are wrapped up in their creative work and da da da, da and or touring in my example or whatever that is, you know, I think there's a lot of selfishness in a sense involved in that, a lot of stuff that kids have to make sense of. But in terms of the content, I was always writing with the sense that, oh, my kids are probably going to listen to this. So I was always putting secret messages or very open messages in my work for them, for whenever they encounter it. Like you said, 30 years down the line or whatever, it was always like, at some point, you may, you know, encounter this and I'd like you to be enriched by it or feel like, oh, or whatever. Mm. And so my work has always been seasoned and peppered with the sensibility that comes from the fact that I know younger ears are listening, mm. which also, I guess, maybe in a sense may have, I don't know. I don't know if it forbids me from going certain directions or what have you. I mean, we know a lot of artists with kids who say and do all types of shit, but my work is a representation of what I also was consciously thinking, huh, this is for you at some point to check out and go, my dad was weird or my dad was interesting or my dad was toxic. So you got this movie coming out, Achilles Escape. It was supposed to be released, I think, before the pandemic, right? No. No, um, Achilles always... Escape. I did Achilles Escape in the spring of 2019. Okay. In the summer, spring of 2019. Okay. Before I left for Rwanda to shoot my film. 
And so it's been a natural sort of progression that it ended up in the Toronto Film Festival. The filmmaker is from Toronto. So right. it ended up in the Toronto Film Festival in September, I think that was. Can't remember what, I think that's September, and August, September. And now it's slated for release in June in the States. And I don't know what month in Canada, in the UK and France, but it has theatrical releases in all those places. And I also did the, the score and the soundtrack of that film. And I collaborated with Massive Attack, the mm-hmm. score and soundtrack of Aquila's Escape. So that was really cool as well. And you've been nominated for some stuff. It's been winning some awards. I just saw yeah. the trailer. It looks like some sort of Liam Neeson taken type of <laughs> storyline. It could be wrong. I don't know what it's about, but it looks amazing. Well, You're doing some fight scenes. and Yeah. So that was the funny thing for me is that it gave me a personal excuse to like all the excuse I needed to insist upon having a personal trainer. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and to do, uh, you know, so yeah, I mean, my kids, not all my kids have seen it, but the ones that have, have been cracking up. seeing me uh, in fight poses but yeah I've known the director ever since Slam came out and we've talked about this so it's so it's a really amazing thing for him to have this opportunity his name is is, um, Charles it's extraordinary he's been working on it since 2010 apparently so it's been a sounds like a labor of love for him as well so yeah awesome man Well, look, I just want to loop this back around to childhood, <laughs> you know, because here's the thing. I've done a lot of these conversations. And what I find is that a lot of times what people are most curious about as a young person usually ends up playing a role in what they end up becoming passionate about in their adult years. And you just in your own words, your imagination being your favorite activity and imagining that the acorn was a grenade and the sleigh was a weapon. And it speaks to you know, it's obviously a masculine trait to be combative and to war. <laughs> want to fight. And But it's really about wanting to challenge convention, right? That's what war really is, is the status quo is not working for me. And I want to do something different. I want to impose my idea of how I think things should go onto whatever the conventional thing it happens to be. And that's I feel a very like... generous reading of it. Like that's a very <laughs> generous. <laughs> I think I was just trying to blow shit up. <laughs> I don't know, man. You look back, and it does everything kind of like Steve Jobs said. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking back. And you haven't said anything in this conversation that I feel like hasn't come into play at some point in a crucial way, in a crucial way, in a divinely timed way that has moved the storyline forward of who Saul Williams is in his own personal evolution and who you are in the evolution of of our society. And so you've definitely made that impact with your imagination, with your execution, because it's one thing to imagine. It's one thing to imagine, oh, I want to say this, I want to do that. It's another thing to actually get in front of people and to put the thing in your back pocket and to just let it rip. I mean, there's not a lot of people who, who are able to do that in a way that can make a, as big of an impact as you've made. I want to acknowledge you for showing up, man, and, and going back to the Brooklyn Moon Cafe that night to investigate the foggy windows and insisting that you write that movie slam and just all of the things that you had to do 
in order to turning down the music deal with the big publishing company and going independent. I mean, that stuff is not any one of those would be a, a lifetime decision for a lot of people. So it's inspiring. And I just can't wait for people to hear the backstory behind all of the wonderful things that you've done, because I think that gives it so much context. And I hope that you guys listening to this, go back and listen to your entire discography, which is what I did. Because I'd be honest, I wasn't as familiar with all of your music. I've heard some of it, but I went back and listened to all of it. And honestly, I can't wait to listen to all of it again and just kind of have it on shuffle because it's really the body of work itself could be one big mega album. You wouldn't be able to tell really which one was from which, which piece. There's one from 2020. It's you and this other guy. What is that? Cause that's amazing. It's on Spotify here. I'll pull it up. Is it Roan? It's Ted Hearn. Ted Hearn. Place? Oh, what is that? <laughs> it's amazing. So, I was commissioned to write libretto for a sort of opera oratorio on gentrification by the L.A. Philharmonic, along with Ted Hearn. Ted Hearn was commissioned as a composer, and he turned to me as his librettist. And so that is the libretto of a a piece called Place, which is about gentrification, that was scheduled to go on stage at the LA Phil at the um, Disney Concert Hall last May. Okay. And now I think it's going to be there in March 2022. So that's something that was like kind of sidelined by the pandemic. It premiered at BAM and then was scheduled to start this whole thing that was sidelined by the pandemic. But yeah, Ted and my collaboration was for this, the libretto of this opera oratorio place. Yeah, it was nominated for a Grammy. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just this past, these past Grammys and all that. And that's that. Pretty crazy. But you got to see it on stage. I mean, that, that okay. recording is really the, the recording of what's happening on stage. The stage is crazy. Beautiful. Well, yeah. man, thank you. Thank you again for making the time to have this conversation. I really do appreciate that. And it's so great to connect with you again. Thank you. It's been a while. So yep. yeah, I look, look forward to look forward to crossing paths again at some point soon when all this is Indeed. is over. Thank you for listening to my interview with Saul Williams. If you have not watched his first movie, Slam, which unfortunately the subject matter of that movie about the prison industrial complex is still just as relevant today as it was back in 1998. In fact, I have a relative who spent some time in prison. He's a lawyer. And he said that he's never seen such blatant examples of legal malpractice as when he went to prison and he spoke to a lot of the prisoners about their cases. In other words, most of these guys are in prison for 10 and 12 and 15 years for nonviolent offenses simply because they had no representation or they didn't have good representation. I would also recommend checking out Saul's discography. I find his music to be incredible. His message is powerful and potent. And again, I think you'll find it to be an inspiring listen. And to get the show notes and a transcript of our conversation, you can go to lightwatkins.com. 
While you're there, you can also sign up for my daily dose of inspiration email, and you can pre-order my next book, which is coming out in May of 2021. It's called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. I'm super excited about it. And I think that you're going to get a lot of value out of that. And please don't forget to leave your review so you can help other people find these inspirational stories. And who knows, your words could inspire someone to give this episode a listen and then that could end up changing their life for the better. So again, thanks in advance for doing that. And I'll see you back here next week with another amazing story from the end of the tunnel. In the meantime, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Have a lovely day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.